malevolent rather than intelligent could well be the subtext of today's programme. Hello, welcome to Clever Trees. Today we've come to the Lost Gardens of Heligan, or Heligan perhaps, uh, I'm not sure which, with me uh, to put me straight straight away. Uh, two gentlemen, we've got Peter Stafford and uh, Philip McMillan Browse. Um, Heligan or Heligan? Ligan. 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 If you live in a, a village within striking distance of here, you're in terrible trouble, you say Heligan. It's just not on. Ligan, the old Cornish word for a willow, which is presumably what there was, Philip, all over the estate before it was uh, taken under human control. Well, they used for all sorts of purposes, of course, whether it was for medicinal or timber. Fen yeah, or, and yeah. fencing and hurdles and lobster pots and withies. But it's not a withy, it's not a willow that we're uh, standing next to. They've got something here that uh, is a tree with attitude, something not to be, not to be messed with. Bit of a ropey old looking thing though, if you don't mind me <laughs> saying. <laughs> what is it? It's Umbellularia californica, which is known in England as the headache tree. It's a native of California and Oregon. In Oregon, it's known as the Oregon box because it, the timber on it is very pale, very white like boxwood. In California, it's basically only used in the same way as bay laurel is for cooking. The leaves are used for cooking. I was going to say it looks very much like a, a bay laurel, but uh, the giveaway, I guess, is the, the common name, uh, the headache tree. Um, where, where's the headache? What's the problem with this? Um, when you crush the leaves, um, it gives off a f very pungent aromatic smell. But overriding this is this um, acridity, which is actually due to a strychnine-related um, material in the leaves which volatilizes very quickly, so even if you cook with it, it, it's not a problem. But for those people who are susceptible or allergic or whatever you'd like to put it towards it, it can cause a headache. Um, there are all sorts of stories that the old Victorian gardeners used to tell about this, how dowagers collapsed on the lawn and they walked <laughs> by the trees and things like Very sort of Lady Chatterley-like. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Um, Let's, let's, let, let's risk uh, life and limb, shall we, and uh, grab, grab hold of a bit, Peter. Um, you've got some aspro with you, just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So describe the taste for me. Not good. I mean, it, it is very like bay, but just mm. very, very much stronger. Mm. But it gives you exactly the same effect if you cook with it. Yes. You know, I, as usual, it's used for cooking fish and things like that. Excuse and, me. Mm. Um, I mean, if you if you eat a raw bay laurel leaf, it's not all that pleasant. It's basically for cooking purposes. And you could dry the leaves in the same way and use it use it for cooking with fish and things like that. But I mean, but this was planted here as a specimen tree, wasn't it? Yes. yes. I mean, it's a, the old entrance and exit to the bottom of the vegetable garden, and this would have been a prime plant hunter's specimen tree planted at a particular point of the garden that they wanted it. What's interesting about this specimen is how big it is. Um, way what would back you say, about uh, 18 inches, possibly two feet even, yes, in, two, in, two, in two diameter? Feet, two, two feet at the base. Yeah. Yes, through, through the bowl. And for the UK, that's a big specimen. But for a specimen, it's, as I said at the outset, pretty ropey. It's leaning at a drunken angle, perhaps uh, 45 degrees, and has been truncated, has been chopped off at the top as it leans towards the, the kitchen garden wall there. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really another story that's quite Heligan-esque. Um, literally where we're standing at the, the base of this poor sloping Oregon box, there was a very fine specimen of ash 
60, 70 foot specimen, Philip? All of that. All of that, that had grown, that had self-seeded and grown right at the root base of the um, headache tree. And over the sort of 60, 70 years that uh, Ligon was in gentle sleep mode, this ash tree had, like many other ash and sycamore and beech, grown to maturity. And in the process, its much stronger and more vigorous growth had pushed dear old headache tree over towards the uh, melon yard walls where it rests to this day. Was yeah, you a headache, basically, knowing what to do or wondering what to do with the two of them. Oh, yes, the endless debate as to, to what to do with trees, yes, um, because the ash tree was a very fine tree. It just happened to be in the wrong place. Um, and we're not very good at committee decisions, but there was a very, very clear camp of leave the ash tree and uh, cut the ash tree. The cut the ash tree camp one, clandestinely. <laughs> it's a very Orwellian <laughs> conundrum, isn't it? All <laughs> trees are equal, some are more equal than others. Yeah, and, and I have to say it was, it's made all the difference not having the ash tree mm. here. Um, but it, where we're standing, of course, is where its roots were, and they were, all, they were all ground out so that there's no remains of the ash tree at all. What is the scientific reason? Why, why does it need to have these aromatic leaves? Is this to stop something chewing the leaves off? Is it, uh, is it there as a protection or...? Generally, these things are defensive mechanisms, and they're derived to, at some time in their evolution, and that's the important thing, at some time in their evolution, to give them a defence against grazing... insect or yeah. a weevil or... But it might be grazing animals. You know, we're not talking about giving it protection today. By that, I mean 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years. You're talking about back in its evolutionary development... Um, it may have had to defend itself against something in the same way as plants have spines or, or whatever. And if it gives us a headache, Peter, it may have given an insect or a weevil, as you say, yeah. uh, more than a headache. It may have been so unpleasant that that weevil, that insect, uh, avoided it completely and, and it could grow. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And you get quite a headache just walking around it if you're not careful because the angle it is, you bang your can't head. really <laughs> bang your head on it. Yeah, get a more traditional headache then. You've also tasted it. And if you were an antelope or a deer or something like that, you wouldn't want to graze it either, would you? No, true enough. Well, I can't speak for antelopes Oops. and deers, but I well, assume I if they have similar... <laughs> neither can they. <laughs> similar tastes to us, certainly they wouldn't want to eat it. Yeah. Talk all day about this, couldn't we, Philip? <laughs> this is puny, I suppose, is the only word. Yeah. Uh, three feet. Beautiful, young and nubile. Beautiful, young and nubile, Philip says. What do you reckon, Peter? Well, I, I'm not sure I'd go for beautiful, young and nubile. I just think it's a rather fine specimen of a Sorbus devoniensis that was given to us recently as the sort of the end point of quite an interesting tale. There was a gamekeeper many, many, many years ago called Enoch Hardy. Now, we only heard this when Henry Ford and his wife came to us about two years ago from Mevagissi and said that um, Mrs Ford, and I think Henry Ford also, used to go as children with Enoch Hardy and pick a fruit that they called otmasts, that were prized for their adding flavour to the pheasants that Enoch Hardy looked after. In fact, we learnt later that they were prized more than the pheasants themselves for the additional flavour they, they gave. So we set on a trail to try and find this otmast. He only knew of it as an otmast. 
Mr Ford, give him his due, who's, who's not in his first flush of youth, walked the whole of the estate because he knew it was either in the long drive uh, or, or down in the woods. And eventually, bless him, he found a very old, decaying sample of the tree with some fruits on it, but they were very, they were little and insignificant and obviously it's coming to the end of their life. And that enabled us to identify the tree, which is Sorbus devoniensis, or the French hail, the fruit of which was known to be sold in Barnstable Market for flavouring purposes. So that's almost the end of the tale, except of course we don't know why it is called Otmast. It just so happens that Enoch Hardy was a very fine sailor and had actually taken a, a longboat through the Panama Canal. So I just wonder whether it was a, a nautical at the top of the mast. Because so, you had to climb yeah. the tree to get it, yeah, or you had yeah. to go up the mast if you were... Uh... Yes, exactly. And how long will it take for this tree to be a sizable enough mast for uh, a young tar to uh, be ordered to the top to pick the uh, 30 years, pick the Philip. 30 years. It'll fruit before, It'll fruit before then, but, uh, but you won't have to climb it. And apparently you had to climb it because by the time they'd fallen, they were, they were gone over and weren't right for being pushed into said pheasant. Philip, what's this that we're coming up to now? It looks to me like a rhododendron, but size-wise, it's, it's huge. You're talking about um, three rhododendrons here, which are, what, 45 feet tall? These are derived from the seed that Hooker, Joseph Dalton Hooker, sent back from his trip to Sikkim. He was in India from 1847 to 1851. And haven't they done well? And these are look at, you're looking at stuff, of course, that's now 150 years old. It's coming towards the end of its life. Mm. Inevitably, you know, trees don't last forever. Well, some do. Sequoias and the like. We should perhaps describe that this isn't a single stem tree either. This is a tree that has, oh, I couldn't possibly count them all, but 10, 15, um, trunk, it, trunklets all yes. coming up from the no, centre. There are, there are several different trees in there. They've been planted very close together because I guess that when the head gardener planted them, he had no idea really how big they were going to grow in this climate. So they grew. Then they were probably planted out. They were 50 years old when this garden was abandoned at the time of the First World War. They'd been growing 50. So they weren't even then that big. But what you're seeing here is an unmanaged development of tree rhododendrons. So, so Peter, what's clever about the, the, the rhododendron? They're, they're vigorous, I suppose that's fairly clever, but uh, they're to a penny, aren't they, really? Yes, there's not so much cleverness, it's just their, their, their sort of connection with, with humanity that I, I find interesting. And uh, at the top of Flora's Green is the rhododendron nivium, which is the, the Latin for a snowball. It has this wonderful spherical collection of flowers in a particular shade of... Heliotrope. Tyrian purple, it's called. Tyrian purple. Tyrian purple. Heliotrope, mould house colour. Mm. And uh, in the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that the Victorians learnt to do was to replace vegetable dyes with aniline dyes. And one of the first colours to come out of this process was identical to Nivium. And of course, this started to dye the cloth that became commercially available to the poorer classes. So the working lads and lasses, particularly lasses, were seen going about the Midlands in a colour that was identical to the favoured Nivium in the gardens. And, of course, this simply would not do. The upper classes simply could not have a rhododendron in there 
estate that was anything like the colour of the lasses in Birmingham. So wholesale, they took the Niviums out of their estates because it just reminded them of things they didn't want to be reminded of. But dear old Ligon has still got one because there was no one here to care about that sort of thing. So there's a wonderful little bit of human vanity stuck at the top of Flora's Green. It's not the rhododendron's fault, of course, it's uh, ours. Yet another example of clever trees but silly humans, I guess, yeah, yes, probably, uh, which is a, a continuing theme in, a this, continuing uh, theme, in yeah. this series. And I guess the other clever thing about trees is that they, they look nice. The Victorians wanted to collect them. We still want to collect lovely plants. And in a sense, we're acting as propagators in the same way that some little creature ferreting around yeah. in the undergrowth of finding a seed might propagate it. We're, we're just doing the same thing. We're doing their work for them, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Oh, yes, and that's the whole skill of plant propagation. Yeah. Those are quite clever trees too. The yew, aren't they? They uh, gave us our wonderful longbow with this interesting mixture of heartwood and sapwood, that you don't make the longbow out of one or the other. It has to be exactly the right mix of the two, so you've got strength and flexibility. Uh, and that's been left to go, both those you, well, well, well beyond what they would normally have been pruned to. Most, most trees are clever. Yeah. In one way or another. They've all got some sort of use. I mean, going back to the willows that we're talking about here. That gave... Heligan, its name in the yeah, first place. Exactly. But that's the source of salicylic acid, salic salicylic acid, which is aspirin. And why in the early days people used it to suck the bark instead of before the days of aspirin and knew that it would cure headaches. Well, that's perfect, isn't so it? You, you have a tree light. that can give you a headache, we've come full circle. <laughs> You've got a tree that can cure your headache as well. Mm. It don't get brighter than that, does it? Peter, thank you very much. Philip, thank you very much. And thank you to the gardens and to the trees here at Heligan as well, just outside of uh, St. Austell, I would call it. But you're probably going to tell me it's Snozzle or something Snozzle. like that. Mm. Snozzle.